Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, September 14th, 2021. This is the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson, your host. Very happy to be here, privileged to sit behind this microphone every day, and very privileged to have you all along for the ride. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free of charge on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. We, of course, encourage you to listen live. Programming note, I'll be on with Brett Baer, the special report panel tonight, with Juan Williams and Molly Hemingway, of course, Brett. That's around 6.40 p.m. Eastern Time on Fox News Channel. I hope you will tune in. For that. On the radio side, here's the lineup today. Dr. Marty McCary from Johns Hopkins will be here. I have a number of questions for him, including his reaction to a new study that I think is extremely significant about COVID hospitalizations. How many of the people who are reportedly in the hospital for COVID are actually hospitalized because of COVID as opposed to something else? The answer may surprise you. We'll talk to the doctor about that. Gordon Chang will also be here on a new report about China that you need to hear. And the aforementioned Juan Williams will join us. We'll talk California recall, a few other things as well with Juan. Fox News alert as we get going. Let's bring you statistics as we do every day. Coronavirus cases in the United States, cumulatively, since last March, now at 41.2 million. The real number, much higher. The death toll is now 661,579 Americans who have died from COVID-19 and millions around the world. The Dow is currently down. It's an off day on Wall Street. Dow is off 286 points at this hour, currently at 34,583, closing bell in just under 52 minutes. We will get to a number of key issues over the course of these three hours. But let's begin with something that is perhaps not a key issue, but I want to talk about it anyway. Can we please talk about the Met Gala and AOC in this dress and the whole controversy? So for the uninitiated, and I would very much consider myself a member, by and large, of the uninitiated, the Met Gala is this huge, star-studded, extremely fancy gathering at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City each year. And there's a theme and people get dressed up in high fashion, but it's often quite ridiculous in terms of what these outfits and really costumes look like. The Hunger Games vibes, like the Capitol, very strong with the Met Gala. And you all know that I'm a fan, for example, of Daniel Levy from S Creek. I can't say the full name of the show because it's technically an FCC violation, even though it's spelled differently. It's the S word, spelled differently, and then Creek. Great show. 
He's one of the stars. Funny character. His outfit last night is, well, you can go look it up for yourself. I'm, I'm not going to even pretend that I'm a fan of it. But that's almost half the point with this thing. It is ostentatious. It is over the top. And one of the attendees last night was a young congresswoman from the state of New York, the city in fact, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, Democrat, squad leader. She's like the captain of the squad cheerleading team. And she showed up wearing a white designer dress valued at $1,000. And it had the slogan emblazoned on it in red, tax the rich. And so she was smiling and posing on the red carpet, and everyone was tweeting about it. And in fairness to her, she got exactly the attention that she wanted. She got Tax the Rich trending on Twitter, which is also sort of a win in her little world. She's a very, very online member with a very, very big following. Now, one thing that you need to know, aside from the fact that AOC, of course, is a self-described democratic socialist, Tickets to the Met Gala are $35,000 each. And a table will cost you almost $300,000. So I'm confident that she did not buy her own ticket here. Someone invited her. There are questions about whether this is, you know, kosher when it comes to congressional ethics and accepting gifts. I've heard mixed things about that, but a high-level Republican staffer said, if it's a C3 charitable organization, Generally, you can accept a free ticket, quote-unquote, free ticket to an event like that. That's an exception to the rules. So I think, you know, there might be an ethics complaint that comes down the pike. I don't know if it'll be successful. But I would just like to make a few points about this. And to some extent, we're playing into her hands and playing her game here. Because she did this exactly to cause this precise kind of stir. I will say I don't begrudge her going. It seems like a pretty interesting event. I'm not sure that it's a life ambition of mine to go to the Met Gala. I can't imagine how I would ever get an invite or be able to afford a ticket, of course. But, you know, if that's your sort of thing, that's fine. That's fun. She had her message to deliver tax the rich. Now, she did this surrounded by some of the richest people in the entire country. And I think one of the underplayed ironies, because everyone's talking about hypocrisy and pointing out any number of different things, I think one of the most ironic elements of this is that the Met Gala is technically charity, right? I mean, you're, you're not exactly feeding the children by raising money for the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is one of the richest museums in the world, right? It's not feed the children. It's, it's feed celebrities with champagne, right? That's sort of the vibe of the Met Gala, but it is technically charity for this charitable organization. And very rich and famous people go to it and pay these exorbitant funds because they get to be part of a very glamorous experience where they hobnob with each other and get to try to one-up one another in their outfits, and it's this whole sort of parade. It's a festival of richness, honestly. It's a festival of wealth and fame. And then at the end of the day, you get to write it off. 
It's a tax write-off. You get to spend thirty-five grand times however many tickets you get, and when the tax man comes, you get to deduct that expense to reduce your tax liability. That is a huge appeal of the Met Gala. I don't know if AOC is aware of this, but she wore a tax the rich gown to a 35K per seat event that amounts to, excuse me, a tax shelter for extremely rich people. I find that honestly pretty entertaining. Now, I also think that sometimes we can have what President Obama used to call teachable moments. Because AOC wants to get the slogan going and get all the little online socialists to tweet and post about taxing the rich and it's time to soak the rich. I mean, at some point there's, you know, there's eat the rich. That's another, that's another slogan that they use. I wonder what was on the menu for dinner last night at the Met. Probably not people. Yeah, in any case... She wants people talking about it and saying, oh, yes, fairness, fairness, fairness. We need to be more fair in our taxes, and we need the rich to be taxed for their fair share. Yes, queen, you're killing it again. Right? This is sort of the the sort of reaction that she hoped she would get, and in many quarters she did. I will simply trudge into this conversation with a few boring facts. I know. I'm very sorry. I'm so sorry that I have to intervene here with, you know, data and that sort of boring thing. But if we're talking about taxing the rich, let's just, for the record, state that according to IRS data compiled by the Heritage Foundation in recent years, I will bring up the exact statistic for you. The rich, of course, are taxed. They pay, I would argue, more than their fair share. So on federal income tax, for example, the top 1%, those dreaded, evil, greedy, nasty 1%ers, the top 1% earn 21% of all income earned in the United States. You might say that's disproportionate. But they pay 40%, 4-0, of all federal income taxes that are paid in the country. 40 cents out of every dollar collected in income tax by the federal government is paid by the top 1% in this country. Does that sound fair? In AOC's mind, that's unfair, not to the top 1%, but to the rest of us. They don't pay nearly enough. 1% of the earning population paying 40% of the federal tax income tax bill. Now, if you expand that out to the top 5%, still very much the rich, as they would be described, the top 5% of income earners in the United States, they pay 60% combined of all federal income tax. The top 10% pay 71%, 71 cents of every dollar collected in federal income tax by Uncle Sam, 71 cents out of every dollar paid for by the top 10% of earners. And finally, we'll stop at 25%, so the top quartile, the top quarter of income earners, still the rich, top 25%, they all in combine 
to pay 87%, 87% of federal income tax. Meaning that everyone else, the bottom 75%, right? It's just very unfair for those people, according to AOC. The bottom 75% of earners in our country pay 13% of all federal income tax. So that's just a little boring, stick-in-the-mud PSA from yours truly. I know that we're not really supposed to deal in facts. We just have competing eccentric personalities beclowning themselves all the time, and we, we react angrily based on our tribal alliances. But I occasionally like to insert a few other facts. I know. It's, it's a very innovative, interesting almost uh, insidious thing that we do here on The Guy Benson Show. I will also briefly point out that on the red carpet, all these celebrities are mugging for the cameras, and you see, you know, the flashes are all over the place, and you can hear the shutters clicking, and they are all unmasked. And they're in this enclosed tent area, which I know some people I saw, Whoopi Goldberg on The View today was tangling and arguing with uh, my friend Mary Catherine Ham, who is guest hosting The View, about this. She's like, oh, well, no, outside we didn't wear masks, but inside we were wearing masks. Well, there's limited photos from inside. We know that, quote-unquote, outside was in an enclosed space where all the beautiful, rich, and famous people are not wearing masks and having their photos taken, while all the poor people, the help, the photographers, the folks who were not there just to enjoy their evening, they were all masked up. So you have celebrities in an enclosed space, vaccinated, but wearing no masks, which I don't have a problem with because I believe in the vaccine, but a lot of them don't. In fact, the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, requires masks for all visitors, regardless of vaccination status. That's their official policy right now. And I guess there needs to be an asterisk next to the word all when it comes to all visitors. Whereas the, the help, I don't know what else to call them within this sort of uh, Hunger Games performance and this, this display, the help had to wear their masks even quote-unquote outside in the tent, but the others did not. And while they were all having their photographs taken for page six or what have you, without masks on, you'll be very relieved to know that four-year-olds are being forced to wear masks for eight hours all day long in New York City schools, public and private. Right? That's the situation in New York City. Seemed like the Video Music Awards, they were inside. I saw a lot of non-massing at the VMAs. They're just, you know, the thing is, COVID doesn't affect certain experiences and certain events. And all the hand-wringing about super spreader events, they apply to certain events, not others. Sporting events... Yes. Celebrity events? No. Obama birthday party? No. Sturgis? Yes. And it all comes down to cultural tastes and politics in so many of these cases. The last thought I will leave with you on AOC and the Met Gala and Tax the Rich and all the extravagance and the exorbitant expense of all of it. Do you remember it wasn't long ago where AOC was blaming Donald Trump? for the fate of her grandmother, her abuela in Puerto Rico, 
who she said was living in poverty and squalor, and she blamed Trump. People were saying, well, this is your flesh and blood, Congresswoman. I know it's easy to blame someone that you hate, but this is your family member. As she was decrying how horrible things were for her own abuela. I wonder how abuela felt firing up the old laptop today and seeing her grandchild in a $1,000 dress sitting in a $35,000 seat at one of the glitziest events that exists on planet Earth. I'm sure her heart was warmed. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are just getting started. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fox Nation presents podcasts, women of the Bible speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Let me turn to the focus of today's hearing. Mr. Secretary, the execution of the U.S. withdrawal was clearly and fatally flawed. This committee expects to receive a full explanation of the administration's decisions on Afghanistan since coming into office last January. There has to be accountability. I'm Guy Benson. That was the voice of Senator Bob Menendez, the Democratic chairman of the Senate Relations Committee. Foreign Relations Committee, I should say. As he kicked off today's hearing, we saw Secretary Blinken, the Secretary of State, appear before the House Foreign Affairs Committee yesterday. Today was the Senate's turn. Blinken actually deigned to show up in person this time. And the chairman, the New Jersey Democrat, opened with that. Clearly and fatally flawed, he said. There has to be accountability. Menendez also went after another Biden cabinet secretary who was a no-show in Cut 15. I'm very disappointed that Secretary Austin declined our request to testify today. A full accounting of the U.S. response to this crisis is not complete without the Pentagon, especially when it comes to understanding the complete collapse of the U.S. trained and funded. His decision not to appear before the committee will affect my personal judgment on Department of Defense nominees. I expect the secretary will avail himself to the committee in the near future. And if he does not, I may consider the use of committee subpoena power to compel him and others over the course of these last 20 years to testify. So Menendez not having it today. The tone of the questions, even from some other Democrats as well. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. 
night and day from what we saw from House Democrats yesterday. It was not a fun experience, I would imagine, for Secretary Blinken. A little bit closer to some accountability today. More on that still to come. It's the Guy Benson Show. Dr. Marty McCary up next. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We welcome back to the Guy Benson Show, Dr. Marty McCarran. He's a Fox News contributor. He's a surgeon and a professor of health policy at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Also author of the book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare. A good follow on Twitter, if you are part of that platform, at Marty McCary. And doctor, it's good to have you back. Hi, good to be with you again, guy. I would like to start by playing a soundbite from the governor of Florida. This was the other day. He was asked to respond to criticisms and attacks from the president of the United States on a host of COVID-related issues. Ron DeSantis made a number of points. I won't play the entire clip because it's a bit long, but he made one specific point that I know you have been making for quite some time about natural immunity and how people who have recovered from COVID, how the new attempt by President Biden to impose effectively a federal vaccine mandate, how that might affect those people. Here's what DeSantis said in part, cut 32. This is not about science, uh, because if it was about science, you would recognize the infection conferred immunity that people like Jonathan has. Israel did a study. They said it was much, much more protective than the Pfizer vaccine was. Cleveland Clinic did a study, same thing. Every single credible study always shows that it provides good protection. And so that's just the reality. So I don't support mandates at all, but if you're doing mandate based off this, if you're really following science, you would acknowledge this natural immunity. All right, so doctor, what about this? The natural immunity debate, I think is a very interesting one. Apparently, if you're fully vaccinated, which I am, and I am a very, very outspoken supporter of the vaccines, I've also recovered from COVID after I got vaccinated. But the current rules and a lot of the rhetoric emanating from Washington is that if you have gotten both of your vaccine doses, you are good and you are basically protected, although they muddy the waters on that sometimes. And if you have your little card that proves it, then you can go about your life and you can work and you don't have to worry about your employer or anything like that. But if you have quite a lot of protection naturally in the antibodies in your body because you've had COVID already, that doesn't seem to count when it comes to to these calculations. And I wonder how we can address that. Do you think that there is some way where people can prove that they have antibodies and should that be interchangeable perhaps with a vaccine passport, if you will. Well, you've summarized it very well, Guy, and I agree with how you've described it here. You know, the public health officials in the United States, and it's just a couple people making all the decisions medically. We don't really, um, you know, it's been a battle of science versus scientific authoritarianism and science lost. You know, we have a small group of people making all the decisions. And so they decided early on, that natural immunity was fleeting. It would go away or it would start to wane in six months or a year. And that vaccination 
would be long lasting. And they got it backwards. Okay. They got it backwards. So when the data showed that they had it backwards, and by the way, it's okay to have a wrong hypothesis in science as long as you evolve your position. And they didn't. They held on tightly for 10 months. As many of us, as you described, were out there saying, hey, wait a minute, we're not seeing reinfections after people recover from COVID cause severe illness. We just don't see it. Tell me a case. Show me a case. There are you know, exceptionally rare cases out there. And so natural immunity is, as the big Israeli study shows, 27 times more protective. That's what Ron DeSantis was referring to. So on that point, I want to dig in a little bit further, because my understanding about the Israeli study, which is a very significant study and and very broad-based, is that the best combination you can have is, frankly, what I have. I I didn't do this purposely, but I have natural antibodies and I have both vaxes, uh, you know, both doses of the vax. So if you have those things combined, you are ultra protected against COVID moving forward. But if it's just a battle based on this study, if it's just a battle between natural immunity and just vaccination, the Israeli study suggested that natural immunity is much more powerful than just vaccination. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. So there are 15 studies that, as, um, as you heard earlier from Ron DeSantis, Cleveland Clinic, Washington University, other studies have shown that natural immunity is superior if you truly had symptoms and recovered. Um, But the CDC uh, put out a little jerry-rigged study where they they kind of, um, you know, pieced it together and salami sliced the data to say, hey, we found a little pocket in America where over a two-month period that vaccinated immunity was better than natural immunity. And it turns out they looked at two months in just Kentucky in a small population where it was extremely rare in both groups for anyone to get infected. And so that is the justification they use. And many of us said, and I said said this in the Wall Street Journal piece today, hey, where's the data from the other 49 states? Why are you reporting only Kentucky? And where's the data from the other 19 months? They're only reporting two months. That's and now we're getting to the point of just scientific manipulation, not just denial. So, I mean, it seems like the way to go here is whether or not you've had the disease, get vaccinated, especially if you haven't had it yet, get vaccinated. But if there's now going to be this requirement that if you want to work, show up for work at a company that has 100 employees or more, based on what the president is trying to impose at the federal level, you have to either show your vaccine card that you're fully vaccinated or you have to submit to weekly testing. Would there be a conceivable way for someone to show up and say, here's another card that I have proving that I have natural immunity? How could that work conceivably if our public policymakers would acknowledge what the science is showing, which is the the power and significance of natural immunity. So in Israel, they say if you've had natural, if you have natural immunity, that if you've had the infection, you can just get one dose of a vaccine. That's what a bunch of doctors sometimes prescribe. They say, look, it's not critical, but you can get one dose, and then you're counted as fully vaccinated. In the United States, if you had chickenpox, the CDC says do not get the chickenpox vaccine because you already have immunity. So it's very interesting that they tiptoed around this particular virus just to kind of stand by their original position. But, you know, the tide is turning. Fauci kind of 
was in uh, a deer in headlights mode when he, he was asked about this on CNN last yeah, he week. Yeah, the first have time a firm CNN answer. challenged him. Yeah, it, was, it was odd yeah, to see for, him asked, right? He doesn't get asked questions yeah. like this. He finally did, and he said that he didn't have a firm answer. And that's fine. I would prefer him say that than make something up. But I feel like that is something that is awfully important. Right. I mean, it's something that that should have been considered extremely carefully. We're 18, 19 months into this. We're crafting policy affecting tens of millions of people. This is something that we know affects millions of people, natural immunity. You would think that one of the tiny handful of folks setting policy for the whole country would have a firmer answer on something like this. Yeah, and um, by the way, Spectrum Health, a large health system in Detroit, is now saying they're going to count natural immunity for their vaccine requirement. Businesses should do the same if you're a business owner out there because the vaccine mandate of Biden is really not going to see the light of day outside of federal workers of the military, probably. And by the time it does, maybe the public health officials will be so be clowned from their prior position, they're going to switch. It looks like they're about to switch their view on it. But where I'm concerned is kids. When you mandate kids like Los Angeles is doing to get two doses of the vaccine, after they already have immunity, there are some side effects of the second dose in kids. Myocarditis can be one in 3,000 to one in, in 6,000 boys. And I recommend just one dose for kids who have not had prior infection. And just one quick logistical technical question. If more people start to accept natural immunity on its own or natural immunity plus one dose of the vaccine as being fully vaccinated or fully immunized is probably the better term, how would that be proven? Would that just you'd, you'd get an antibody test? You'd say you'd go to the doctor, say, hey, I had symptoms. I tested positive or I think I tested positive with these symptoms, you know, back in whatever month it was. Then you get the antibody test. And you've, if you've got them, that's how it would work. It, it, that could it could work like that. But it's not as if the level of antibodies correlate necessarily with immunity and the antibodies come and go so part of it's just a function of time of how far out you are from your infection and we look at survivors of the spanish flu of 1918 none of them had circulating antibodies but they've got the memory b cells and t cells that give them immunity so the antibodies when they're there do show that you've got protection but when they're not there it doesn't mean you're not protected that is i wonder there'd have to be some way to sort of confirm Right, that you're not just making it up that you had it to get around. I'm just, I'm just trying to think practically. Yeah, if we're a prior try to test, do this. a pro- prior positive COVID test would count in my mind. Okay, interesting. That that makes sense. I want to ask you about something else that you've written about uh, today, and I know you've spoken about it before as well. And it goes to the data itself. You were citing this little sort of boutique, perhaps manipulated slice of a study out of a part of Kentucky, which drew one conclusion while they are perhaps disregarding or under downplaying uh, other data from other countries when we get into you know mask mandates for kids in school for example a lot of people want to pretend like the UK doesn't exist the EU doesn't exist the lessons in the data there you know just plugging their ears because masks on kids is essential and anyone who disagrees is killing kids that's sort of the debate that we're having here on a broader level it seems like so much of the important data that we're discussing comes from Israel or comes from other countries. And you're asking the question, why don't we have better data here in the United States of America uh, that we can rely on more or at least the same amount 
as the expansive data sets that we're getting from abroad. What's your theory there? Well, if there's any indication that the CDC has failed in its primary task, it is right now when we are watching all the great data come out of Israel. We have 20 times the data. We've got um, a budget of $57 billion between NIH and CDC. And yet the NIH spent twice as much money last year on aging research than it did on COVID research. You know, it's very frustrating. The CDC has got 21,000 employees. The way that they could not merge the data sets of vaccinated Americans, positive test results, hospitalizations, variants, uh, all of that stuff should have been reported in real time to guide our pandemic strategy. And they didn't. And so um, I don't know what these 21,000 employees are doing over there. I don't know if they're looking at the Office Depot catalog or um, I don't know what's happening. I mean, where's the data? Bangladesh is the only country that they cluster randomized control trial on masks. How is Bangladesh putting out the big data on masks and not the United States of America? Last question, Dr. McCary, for right now. I'm not sure if you saw this piece in The Atlantic, but it was talking about a new study that's pretty significant in my view, that looks at COVID hospitalizations, quote unquote, and finds that in the first half of 2021, so most of this was pre-Delta, and this is at VA hospitals, so it skews heavily male, so we just want to point out those potential shortcomings in the data, but this study showed that almost half, in the first half of 2021, almost half of so-called COVID hospitalizations were people who were asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic, many of whom just showed up to the hospital for other reasons. And then they were required to get a COVID test under the rules, tested positive. That went into the system, the broader system, if you will, as a COVID hospitalization, even if the COVID was incidental to their reason for showing up or being hospitalized in the first place. Uh, And there's a a study out of California a few months ago that showed the same thing among kids, where it seems like we are maybe vastly overcounting the number of COVID hospitalizations, which does not downplay the severity of the problem or, you know, the full ICUs or any of that. That's real. But if we want to figure out what's happening in the pandemic, how bad it is, what policies to pursue, I feel like this is a pretty sloppy way to report such an important metric where we're counting people as in the hospital for COVID, even if they're in the hospital not for COVID, but happen to test positive. Uh, Your reaction and analysis briefly to that study. Well, it shows that the PCR test is so sensitive, it can pick up one dead virus particle. And, you know, they're routinely doing PCR testing at all hospitals. They're getting counted as COVID hospitalizations. The CDC, after they try to scare teenagers to death by saying, hey, look at the high rate of hospitalizations, they went back and said, Upwards of 40% of those were not in the hospital for COVID in their analysis. And uh, Alameda County in California revised down their death toll by 25% when they did a closer evaluation. So I agree with you, Guy. People are dying of COVID. If you don't have immunity and you're an adult, they're dying right now. That group is dying at a rate of 1,000 people a day. Get vaccinated. Do it quickly. Do it today. Otherwise, we need to be very honest with the data and stop with these distracting issues and focus on the one singular goal that we all have in common. Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor. He is a medical doctor and a professor at Johns Hopkins. His book is The Price We Pay. Doctor, appreciate it. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Good to be with you, Guy. Thanks. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned.
You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Thanks, I'm Norm MacDonald, and now the fake news. Well, it is finally official. Murder is legal in the state of California. It's the Guy Benson Show, and that there, an absolutely classic one-liner delivered during Weekend Update in 1995 when that Saturday Night Live segment was anchored by the great Norm MacDonald. I was really stunned and very sad to learn just minutes ago that Norm has passed away at the age of just 61 years old. He had been battling cancer, apparently, for a number of years, very privately. I did not know he was sick. He is, he was an absolutely hilarious person. His wry delivery, the way that he could tell certain stories, fantastic. I remember watching at one of the roasts, I think Comedy Central did one of their roasts, and Norm came out and deliberately bombed. Like he told the hokiest, dumbest jokes he could think of, and the other comedians were dying. The audience had no idea what was happening. The other comedians were absolutely dying. So he bombed on purpose and therefore killed among his peers. And I keep using the word absolutely in this segment because I have very strong feelings about Norm Macdonald and I'm just so sad that he's passed away. This clip from Late Night with Conan O'Brien, one of my favorite all-time Norm moments. Just listen to Cut 34. You are making a movie with Carrot Top, right? I made a movie with Carrot Top. Okay. But uh, what's the movie going to be called? Really? I know what it's going to be called. Yeah, what's that? If it's got Carrot Top in it, you know what a good name for it would be? What's that, Norm? Box Office Poison. There's this movie coming out. Yes. Title undetermined at this point. Chairman of the Board. Oh. All right. Do something with that, you freak. <laughs> I, I bet the board is spelled B-O-R-E-D. Conan loses it. Just banging on the desk, he's laughing so hard. So quick, so clever. Oh, Norm MacDonald, dead at the age of 61. Rest in peace. Thanks for the laughs. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of the story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. A new hour here on The Guy Benson Show, our second of three. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast always free. I'll be on special report tonight. A member of the panel, Fox News Channel, coming up. 
the 6 p.m. Eastern Time Hour. Fox News alert. The Dow closes down significantly today. 292 points in the red, ending at 34,577. Well, we began the show with a conversation about the Met Gala and AOC and her dress and taxing the rich and her abuela. We covered a lot. Is it the most important issue, the most pressing issue facing our nation today? No. Did I want to talk about it anyway? Yes, I did. And I feel like this next topic falls into a similar category. Must we talk about Nicki Minaj, vaccines, male body parts? Yes, we must. So if you're unfamiliar with Nicki Minaj, she is a musical artist, hip-hop artist, rapper, She's got a number of huge hits, or she's collaborated on a ton of huge hits, often with sort of the rapping interlude. I want to say Starships was one of her first big hits years ago at this point. It's catchy. Apparently she hates it. I read one of those articles. We talked about it on the air. Musical artists and bands that hate certain songs that people really like. Hers was Starships, which is the only one I can even name. I think it's catchy, personally. Unimportant. So she tweeted, and this actually ties back to the Met Gala. I guess she was invited, decided not to go, and the reason had to do with the vaccine mandate involved. So she tweeted last evening, quote, and she's got tens of millions of followers. Right? So this is not someone who's obscure, right? If you're listening, and in all fairness, you know, if you are within a certain demographic, older, you might not know of Nicki Minaj, right? Some of these new artists and famous people that the kids are all talking about, I have no idea who they are. I saw Chris Hayes, one of the liberal hosts at MSNBC, he said the other day that one of the aspects of aging is you stop knowing half of the things that younger people are talking about. And despite being in my mid-30s, I can relate with like the Gen Z kids and the stuff and some of their heroes and these like TikTok stars and like nope don't know any of that but I know Nicki Minaj here's what she writes in the tweet last evening they want you to get vaccinated for the Met talking about the Met Gala if I get vaccinated it won't be for the Met it'll be once I've done enough research I'm working on that now in the meantime my loves be safe wear the mask with two strings that grips your head and face not that loose one and then she's got the prayer hands emoji, and the heart emoji. So in this tweet, she is making clear she's not vaccinated. She's doing her research about it, okay? And in the meantime, she's encouraging people to mask up. And I will just briefly point out that masks are really not that effective. I mean, especially for children. We won't go down that rabbit hole right now. I've said my piece about that many times based on the data. Masks can be helpful for adults, especially certain types of masks worn correctly in certain settings. Many of people, many, many people, including adults, don't wear the correct kind of masks. It is not a substitute at all, masking, for vaccination. Like, the level of protection, it's not even close. The vaccines are extremely safe and effective against severe illness or death. Masks are much more marginal, let's put it that way. So she's sort of inverting the reality here in her advice to her followers. Fine. I just want to make that. Then, 
A few minutes later, this wasn't enough, she decided that she needed to share some more reasons that she is uh, still unvaccinated, including, I guess, this uh, desire that she has to do more research. And I'm just going to read this to you. Quoting from Nicki Minaj and her Twitter feed, my cousin in Trinidad won't get the vaccine because his friend got it and became impotent. His testicles became swollen. His friend was weeks away from getting married. Now the girl called off the wedding. So just pray on it and make sure you're comfortable with your decision, not bullied. So as you might imagine, this set off a quite a firestorm of a reaction. Because the first one was at least sort of like, hey, maybe mask up. I'm doing research. If I get vaccinated, it's not going to be for this event. It is not that objectionable, not necessarily overtly anti-vax. And she has pointed out in a a series of caustic follow-ups that she has tweeted more positive things about the vaccine in the past, although she herself hasn't gotten it. She says that she probably will at some point because she'll want to go on tour, whatever. But this tweet about the cousin's friend, this is part of the reason that we have vaccine hesitancy. It's not just because red hat wearing MAGA people in the Deep South don't want to get it because they think there'll be, you know, microchips implanted into their body by Bill Gates or something, right? There are some people who believe that craziness, not that many. I think some of it is tribal, some of it is, you know, based on ideology or, you know, in-group behavior, and it's not just conservative Republicans or Trump supporters. I know that's what people like to focus on. It's what the media focuses on. But younger people of color are a huge problem on vaccines in terms of vaccine hesitancy or hostility. And Nicki Minaj, who is not a Trump supporter, I, I don't know how else to put it, is blasting out to tens of millions of her fans many of whom are in the aforementioned demographic that I mentioned, younger people, people of color. She is saying that she's not vaccinated. She's still doing her research. And then she relays this, this anecdote, this alleged anecdote about her, excuse me, about her cousin's buddy. And by the way, you hear me coughing. I have a frog in my throat. I don't have COVID, having been fully vaccinated and recovering from COVID. So I'm confident of that. It's just a slight um, sore throat today. So let not your heart be troubled, as another radio host would say. So Nicki Minaj decides that she wants to share with the world and her tens of millions of followers this story about a dude that her cousin allegedly knows uh, knows in Trinidad who became impotent, quote-unquote. The CDC has come out and said, nope, that is not a thing. Dr. Manny Alvarez, if you don't trust the CDC, and I think there are some reasons why They are not terribly credible these days. One of our medical experts at Fox on this show, who's an OBGYN, an expert on reproductive health, he knows a lot about the vaccine. He has also made this point. There is no fertility issue at all with the COVID vaccines. No evidence of that. But Nicki Minaj, in her research, I guess, heard from her cousin that a dude got impotent because his parts... I'm not sure what words I'm allowed to use here. But uh, Tucker Carlson last night was covering this in primetime on Fox News Channel, and they had some memorable chyrons, the little lower third graphics about this story, detailing the status of Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend's genitalia. 
I saw some of the some of the screenshots, and I have to admit I was howling because in addition to these graphics with these words, it would just seem like 2021 Mad Libs. Like it, it just makes no sense unless you're deeply into this, you know, Twitter news cycle or whatever. And there you've got Tucker Carlson doing his, you know, his very concerned Tucker face. This gold, 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 gold. But what is actually being conveyed here is ridiculous. A lot of people are saying, yo, that sounds maybe like chlamydia. Maybe that's why the uh, wedding got called off. But there could be other people who are saying, oh, yeah, gosh, here's a story from Nicki Minaj. I don't want to be impotent. I don't want that to happen to me. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to do my research, such as reading Nicki Minaj's Twitter feed. I'm waiting on Cardi B to weigh in, by the way, before I fully commit one way or the other on this. This could be dangerous. This is misinformation. And I think it's hard to frame this this tweet in particular as anything other than anti-vax. So Joy Reid, who's a host at MSNBC, African-American woman, very liberal, super woke these days, plays the race card left and right. She goes on the air to scold Nicki Minaj yesterday. Here's what that sounded like. Cut 26. People like Nicki Minaj, I have to say this. You have a platform, sister, that is 22 million followers. Okay, I have 2 million followers. You have 22 million followers on Twitter. For you to use your platform to encourage our community to not protect themselves and save their lives, my God, sister, you could do better than that. You got that platform. It's it's a blessing. It's a blessing that you got that, that people listen to you. And they listen to you more than they listen to me. For you to use your platform to put people in the position of dying from a disease they don't have to die from, oh my God, as a fan, as a hip-hop fan, as somebody who was your fan, I'm so sad that you did that. So sad that you did that, sister. Oh my God. So that's Joy Reid. That video was tweeted out by MSNBC, and Nicki Minaj got wind of it and spent quite some time then just torching Joy Reid. Now, to be clear, I actually agree with Joy Reid on the issue of vaccines here. In this narrow sense, she and I agree, even though we almost always disagree. Was it at least somewhat entertaining to watch Nicki Minaj go to work on Joy Reid? Yes, sure was. And here's why. So she uh, tweeted the clip. She quote tweeted it. And in a series of tweets, suggested that Joy Reid was criticizing her at the behest of white men. And there's one clip where there were two white guys in boxes on the show, Joy Reid's show, and Nikki brings this up. Oh, yeah, look at these white men nodding. Another tweet in this tirade from Nicki Minaj against Joy Reid. This is what happens when you're so thirsty to down another black woman by the request of the white man that you didn't bother to read all my tweets. Quote, my God, sister, do better. Imagine getting your dumb ass on a TV a minute after a tweet to spread a false narrative about a black woman. So Nicki Minaj immediately responds to Joy Reid by playing the race card and the sex card back to back repeatedly. Basically suggesting that Joy Reid is a pawn of white men or the white man. She called her in other tweets, 
Uncle Tomaya, like Uncle Tom, female version. She went straight for race and identity to viciously attack Joy Reid. Now, I don't think that these are good arguments. I think these are bad, weak, distracting arguments, as a matter of fact. Taking someone's identity and trying to use it as a cudgel against them or to play the race card or to say that you're just you know, a, a token if you say something against me and you're doing it to attack me because I'm a black woman and you're speaking on behalf of you know, the white man or whatever. This must, uh, this must you know, if you think about it, I would imagine this must really suck if you're Joy Reid to have these types of dishonest, demagogic, nonsensical, unresponsive arguments deployed against you when there's a serious issue at stake that needs to be discussed and debated. Perhaps Joy Reid, who is, let's say, not a stranger to deploying very similar tactics on a regular basis, maybe she can learn a lesson now that these exact tactics have been used against her by a very prominent person causing a meltdown on the Internet. If you don't like it when your motives are questioned and the race card is played against you and you are demeaned based on these characteristics, maybe you shouldn't do that to other people. That's just a thought for Joy and friends over at her network because this is a common calling card in left-wing rhetoric and it's interesting when they've forgotten how to actually debate that this is immediately what they reach for and now they're getting singed by their own tactics here and in this case it's joy reed who's getting victimized by it just a friendly thought on my part just a just a, a tip right just a note a note from your friends here at the guy benson show now There was one other thing that Nikki did, Nikki Minaj. She dug up, and I wonder who sent this over to her. She dug up a tweet, a screenshot from Joy Reid, who was sounding kind of vaccine skeptical back when Donald Trump was president. Right? When the political dynamics were different. You sort of wonder how Joy Reid would think about the vaccines today if Donald Trump were still president. Would she be this great champion for science and vaccines if Trump were in the White House? I think we have a little preview of that, and Nicki Minaj highlighted that. I think that's a pretty fair, tough hit from Minaj. Score a point for Minaj. She also called Joy Reid a homophobe. Based on some homophobic stuff that Joy Reid had written on her blog years ago, they surfaced, they surfaced rather a few years back. Joy Reid tried to deny that she had written them, claiming ridiculously that she had been hacked, I guess by time-traveling hackers who went back to some blog in the mid-2000s to invent gay, unfriendly statements that she had written. But she claimed that she was hacked. I guess the FBI got involved because of that. Well, of course, that was not true. There was no hack. She wrote those things. She said those things. Rather than fessing up and saying, I've changed, I'm evolved, I'm so sorry, she tried to go the hack route, claiming that, because now she's in the woke crowd, and she knows how little forgiveness there is. Maybe there's another object lesson here for Joy Reid. And Nicki Minaj threw both of those right in her face. Am I slightly amused? Yes. Do I agree with Joy Reid about vaccines? In this case... 
I do. And I'm not sure I need to read a Nicki Minaj tweet again anytime soon, certainly on this show. It is The Guy Benson Show, and we'll be back. Energetic, informed, fast-paced, Guy Benson Show. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for listening. Just saw this poll breaking in the last hour or so. And I only raise it. It's a single poll. Although it is part of a trend that is probably a troubling one for Joe Biden and the White House. I want to mention it here because it's the Quinnipiac poll, the Q poll, which has been in recent years, I would say, decidedly and notably blue tinted. It is often filled with good news for Democrats, bad news for Republicans in such a way that is sort of an outlier from other polling. So if it's a Democrat leaning poll, that has to add to the concern here. For Team Biden, who is now eight points underwater on job performance overall, 42% job approval, with 50% disapproving, and some ugly, crooked numbers on issues ranging from Afghanistan to the economy. Even on COVID, his supposed bread and butter, Biden is just about even on job approval. So keep an eye on that. If even the Q poll is producing results like that, it might not be great out there. And we'll see how that might reflect itself in coming election cycles, including, crucially, next fall. When we come back, Gordon Chang on China. You don't want to miss it. Next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. We're pleased to welcome back Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China. Gordon, welcome back. Thank you so much, Guy. I wanted to get your take on a story reported this week by Reuters, which discussed a group of Stanford professors out in Palo Alto getting together and signing a letter urging the Biden administration and the U.S. government, the DOJ, to end a program started under Trump that seeks out Chinese spies who are operating within academia. Now, before I get your commentary on this request from these professors and some of their complaints, can you just explain for us, in your view, based on your expertise on these matters, is espionage on behalf of the CCP within Institutions of higher learning in the United States, is that a real problem or is this Red Scare 2.0? This is a real problem, and it's it's part of a much larger problem, Guy, and that is each year China steals somewhere on the order of about $500 billion worth of U.S. intellectual property. That estimate comes from John Radcliffe when he was director of national intelligence last December in his Wall Street Journal op-ed. Some people put the figure a little bit lower. Some people put the figure at $600 billion. Whatever it is, it's a grievous loss. And much of that occurs at American research institutions and universities across the U.S. And so in order to address that concern, 
and what I think is undeniably a problem, the Justice Department has been seeking to root out anyone who's engaged in that sort of espionage against the United States, whether it's the government of the United States or intellectual property that is American and smuggling it, if you will, to China or working on behalf of the Chinese government in some way that they are not disclosing. These professors at Stanford say this is overreach. Uh, it, it is going too far. It is racial profiling, racism. That's one of their arguments as well. They also contend that this could contribute to brain drain, where people won't be attracted to come and work in academia, the best and brightest, because they're afraid that they're going to be racially profiled by the U.S. government. What do you make, Gordon, of some of those allegations? Do they hold water? Most of those allegations do not hold water, and the others are just merely questionable. Um, Academics in the U.S., and this is especially true of those in the scientific community, find it impossible to believe that other scientists, Chinese or not, um, are actually engaged in espionage and in dangerous activities. And we see this, for instance, in the National Institutes of Health, specifically Dr. Fauci's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, where they're still funding research at Chinese military-linked institutions, which to me is unbelievable after the coronavirus epidemic. And by the way, Um, just to jump in and and fortify that point, Fauci, when he's been asked about this sort of thing and gain-of-function research and money flowing to the Wuhan lab, etc., he talks, I would say naively at best, about Chinese scientists who are in the thrall of the Chinese Communist Party or working for the Chinese Communist Party, he talks about them like they are kindred spirits who are just you know data-driven scientists who care only about the science. And that might be true. That might be what they want to be, what they aspire to be. But if you are working and operating under the authority and the boot of the Chinese Communist Party, there are going to be expectations of you, and that high-mindedness can very much be taken advantage of. Oh, certainly. We have to remember that China has this doctrine of civil-military fusion, which means that everything that the civilian institutions produce is available and directly pipelined to the Chinese military if it wants it. So there's no such thing as civilian or private research in China. It is all Chinese state. And this is becoming more and more true as Xi Jinping adopts more control mechanisms over um, private civil society. So really what we're talking about is naivete on the part of Dr. Fauci. Also, um, one could talk about his testimony before the Senate on both May and July, his questions and responses to um, Dr. Uh, to Dr. Uh, Rand Paul. But what we're seeing is a failure on the part of the United States in general. This is Fauci, but this is also it cuts across both political parties, cuts across conservatives, liberals, Democrats, Republicans, is a failure to understand both the fundamental nature of China and its maliciousness. Because when you look through all of these issues, for instance, these Stanford professors, I don't think that they understand what China is trying to do to the United States, which is essentially to take us over. I know that sounds drastic, but that's what the Chinese say. They call us an enemy. They've declared a quote-unquote people's war on us. I don't know how much clearer they can be about what they're trying to do. And I can't really fathom the naivete and the obliviousness of Americans. Well, and they certainly want to supplant us as the global hegemon. There's no question about that. And uh, they're patient and they're taking active steps and measures in that direction all the time, including the spying and the theft 
and the compromising, the blackmail, all of it, that's part of this program. I just want to zero in for a second, Gordon, on the allegation of racism and racial profiling. And I recognize that when you are trying to do something like this and undertake a project like this at the Justice Department or what have you, you have to be careful about the way that you carry things out. You don't want to cross any lines or boundaries that would severely violate our values in the West. You don't want to break our own values in pursuit of trying to limit the influence and power of a regime that does not share our values, right? However, I think there's an important distinction. This also goes back to our discussion we've been having and our debate we've been having in this country about coronavirus. There's a distinction between the Chinese Communist Party and their various tentacles, which is a a government, a communist government and regime, and Asian people broadly, right, from the Far East, right? There's no suggestion here that just because you have a certain skin color or if you are from Taiwan or Japan or Thailand or you name it, that you would fall under suspicion in a way that we would expect if this were rampant racial profiling. This is a concern about a government, a very powerful government, that, yes, is located in the Far East, but the concern is with the CCP, not with the race. And I feel like we had a parallel conversation just like this about coronavirus, much to the delight of Beijing, where for a while, and still, I'd say to some extent today, it's like, oh, well, you can't really talk too much about China or Wuhan because that's racist. And the Chinese said, oh, yes, we like that. Let's go with that. I mean, that is just doing them a great service by conflating these things in both of these realms, right? I agree with 100% of everything you said. Um, We've got to remember a couple things. First of all, um, those who have been targeted by the FBI are not just Asians, not just Chinese. So, for instance, there have been charges that have uh, indictment of uh, Dr. Charles Lieber at Harvard, who is not Chinese, who is not Asian. But also, China's 2017 national intelligence law requires every Chinese national to spy if Beijing demands. And that means that every Chinese national is a legitimate target of interest. This is not race. This is just Chinese law. Also, it is, China's top, it is government policy. It's also the Communist Party's top-down system, whereby nobody, whether individual, organization, whatever, um, is in a position to resist a demand from the party. So it's those two things, the party system and the 2017 national intelligence law, That puts every Chinese national as a legitimate target of law enforcement. Also, we know that China targets American citizens of Chinese ancestry um, to spy. Um, This has been well documented. This has occurred over decades. This occurred not just in the United States, but elsewhere. So, again, um, although this may be a sensitive subject, um, we have to understand who China is looking to um, turn and to commit espionage against the U.S. And in many cases, it's been successful in turning American citizens to spy for Beijing. So we've got to be clear here. This is a matter of national survival, Guy. And that means for us, and that means I don't, yeah, I can understand we don't want to compromise our principles, but we have to understand reality, which means that we will have to look at Chinese people, including Gordon Zhang, for instance, with a more jaundiced eye. Well, and look, I would say this. When we are contemplating these issues and we are trying to figure out how to neutralize and push back against the threat of the CCP and Beijing's malign influence, we cannot, and this is true broadly uh, across the spectrum on 
foreign policy, we cannot view the world as we wish it exists and how we wish things were. We have to view it the way things actually do exist, the way things are. And if the Chinese government is undertaking some of the things, as they are, that you've laid out, it would be folly and idiocy for us not to pay attention to that. And just to go back to the Cold War, because I mentioned the Red Scare earlier, I invoked that, there were some examples of real overreach during the Red Scare. And you think of Senator McCarthy, for example, being front and center. But that didn't mean that the threat wasn't real, because the Soviets absolutely were trying to penetrate, and in some cases did, high levels of the U.S. government for their various ends. And a lot of the people that the Soviets and then the Russians were able to compromise or able to bring into the fold to spy on their behalf were not Soviets, right? Aldrich Ames was not a Soviet. Alger Hiss was not Russian. Robert Hansen was not Russian. These were American citizens who ended up betraying their own country. Now, they happen to have the same sort of white skin color as Russians. That shouldn't matter if the issue is spying and espionage designed to undermine the United States of America, our government, our companies, our intellectual property, our liberties, etc. Last question briefly, Gordon, and it goes to a story that we covered yesterday pretty briefly. There was, I don't know if you saw this in the Wall Street Journal, I'd imagine you did, there was a high school in Colorado recently that wanted to attend some of their students on the field trip they wanted to attend a panel at the united nations china is a member of that panel and effectively i guess wield some veto power over just attendees so this colorado high school had made the request for their students to show up and the answer came back that they had to go back on their website this is just an obscure web page of a Jesuit high school in Colorado and change a reference from a year ago in some press release that suggested that Taiwan was a country in a completely unrelated context. The CCP was bothered enough by that that they made it sort of the price of entry for this high school to avail their students of this opportunity. The high school, I think, to their great shame, said, okay, and they censored their own website. But to me... The only thing that surprised me about that story, it was not the heavy-handedness of Beijing or that type of pressure campaign. It was the fact that they went to something so insignificant and obscure as a pressure point. And if that's what they're willing to do to some random high school in the Rocky Mountain region of the United States, of course they're going to go that far and much further when the stakes are much higher. That, that's, my, that's my lesson from this episode. Yes, and it shows you the thoroughness of China's policies and its external uh, actions. And as the United States, we should have a policy, and we should enforce it as vigorously as the Chinese. They're saying, no, that is not the position of the United States, which is our position is that the status of Taiwan is undetermined. And we should make sure that we enforce our views at the U.N. as vigorously as China does. This should be a matter of U.S. government policy stated at the highest levels. Gordon Chang is the author of The Coming Collapse of China. Gordon, where can people find you on Twitter? At Gordon G. Chang, G-O-R-D-O-N-G-C-H-A-N-G. At Gordon G. Chang on Twitter, worth a follow on all issues China-related. Gordon, always appreciate it. Thank you so much, Guy. I really appreciate it. And The Guy Benson Show resumes next. You're listening to Guy Benson. 
New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. We are back on The Guy Benson Show. Jimmy Kimmel is one of these late-night comedians who seems to be losing every night in the ratings battle to several of his competitors, including our own Greg Gutfeld, whose show I will join up in New York next week, scheduled to be on. Looking forward to be back there. But Jimmy Kimmel, among other things, in between his comedy duties, he is also a sleazy Democratic spokesman. And he will often delve into politics, and it's actually proven... Right? It's been documented that he reaches out to top Democratic leadership offices to get their help, quote-unquote, with talking points. So if he wants to make a case against Republicans, which he does all the time, but he doesn't really know enough, he'll just reach out to Chuck and say, hey, give me some of your talking points, and he'll go on his ABC show and recite them uncritically. Because obviously that is how comedy works. High, high comedy. So he is effectively a DNC spokesman. And my favorite detail of all time about Jimmy Kimmel is that he organized an entire basketball game against Ted Cruz, assuming he would win, had a trophy made for himself, assuming he would win one-on-one, and then lost to Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz (laughs) in this game. And then didn't really want to give Cruz the trophy, but Cruz had it and then gave it to one of his daughters. So it would be extra difficult for Kimmel to steal it back. In any case, I digress. Kimmel, on his show last night, took an interesting new tack, a new talking point, it would seem, from this Democratic spokesman, mocking the dead from COVID in Florida. Listen to this. It is ridiculous, but this is an interesting statistic. COVID deaths have proven to be much higher in states that voted for Trump. Basically, if your state has more GEDs than PhDs, stay indoors. (laughs) Of the 54,000 Americans who died from COVID since the start of the summer, Almost one in, five, one in five of them died in Florida, which, my God, all those orphan ferrets, it's a shame. Okay, so he takes the shot at people with mere GEDs as opposed to PhDs. This is the guy who got his real start in entertainment hosting a show where he sat around and drank beer while women jumped on trampolines in slow motion. So it's you know a real high-caliber genius here that we're talking about with, with Jimmy, but he makes that joke sort of sneering at the less educated population. Then he makes the joke in particular at the expense of Florida. I guess he envisions Floridians as a bunch of toothless, idiot, undereducated ferret owners or something. And the audience out in Los Angeles, which has had a terrible time with COVID, by the way, sophisticated, urbane, left-wing Los Angeles, uh, they seem to be highly entertained by all of this. But his very first statement there, He said, it's an interesting statistic. COVID deaths have been proven to be much higher in states that voted for Trump. Well, let's take a look at the top 10 states in terms of death rates. So this is adjusting for population. This is the death rate in United States states. We'll do the top 10. Count in your mind red states and blue states, okay? New Jersey, number one. Mississippi, number two. New York, Number three, Louisiana, number four, Massachusetts, five, Arizona, six, Rhode Island, seven, Alabama, eight, Arkansas, nine, Connecticut, ten. 
by my count, that is five and five red and blue states. And not in that top ten, incidentally, Florida, which has a better than average vaccination rate. They have definitely come up in the death rate numbers with their Delta wave that is finally coming down. I think there might be seasonal waves elsewhere this fall and winter, which I worry about elsewhere in the country. But his assertion, setting aside the tasteless jokes, his assertion, the statistic, is wrong. And to make it right and to make Florida look uniquely bad, he has to cherry-pick a specific period of time and ignore other data and information. So unsurprisingly, this DNC spokesman, not only unfunny in this case, but factually challenged as well. Hilarious stuff from Jimmy Kimmel on The Guy Benson Show. Final hour coming up. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Let's dive right into the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every single day on demand. No charge to you. It's a pretty good deal. GuyBensonShow.com. And happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. Delicious and refreshing. It is only available to those of you 21 years of age or older, of course. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. You can see where they're sold near you. You can order online, which is... Our course of action, thelongdrink.com. With that, let's bring in Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist at The Hill, and author of multiple books, including most recently, What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? Juan, welcome back, sir. My pleasure, Guy. How are you? I'm good, Juan. Were you by any chance at the Met Gala last night, rubbing elbows with all the beautiful people? No. Boy, I was just curious. I, well, the, the thing is, uh, first of all, I so appreciate that you would put me in the company of beautiful people. But I think, <laughs> I think, Guy Benson, you are trying to absolutely snooker me into saying, oh, you're one of those elite crazy people. Because to me, when I see how they dress, I think nobody dresses like that. This is like a freak show. I think it is the point to kind of dress like a freak show. And a lot of people have compared it to sort of Hunger Games style attire, and I can't really disagree. Although I would like to see what your personal stylist would dream up for you. If you had to wear something outrageous for the red carpet at an event with all your fellow progressives, Juan, I mean, you could maybe have a little fun with that. You have some some flexibility there, some options. For a guy who's 67, I I don't know. I I think I I would look like I was trying too hard. I think people like Guy Benson would laugh at me. But what could I wear? I think think even the young, the young, famous uh, celebrities—they're all trying too hard. One, it's almost the point of this thing. I think. (laughs) All right. Well, then I guess I might fit in because I would look ridiculous. I mean, I don't know what. To me, it's almost like you know, if you dressed up as one of these things, you could be in the Thanksgiving Day parade or something. Because I mean, they look that <laughs> like, like big, those big balloons floating in the sky, ridiculous. Oh my gosh! Now I'm envisioning a Juan Williams float on Thanksgiving oh, Day, my gosh. 
with your sort of your mouth moving on the float and you're just saying <laughs> liberal talking points. This is really? actually very there disturbing. Very you're disturbing. You're in the mood today, Guy Benson. I am. I do think that because you were asking me what would I wear, I would be tempted to just wear what I basically wear every day, which would be jeans, a button-down shirt, a blazer, and topsiders. That's basically my uniform. And okay. so I might not get a lot of buzz on the red carpet. I did like the photo of a pigeon that landed. And people were ooing and eyeing at the pigeon's look um, right on the red carpet there. But I think I would feel like a fish out of water there. And it sounds like maybe you feel the same way. Juan, let's talk not about an event on the East Coast, but an upcoming electoral outcome on the West Coast. Today is the recall out in California for Governor Gavin Newsom. The polling has moved very heavily in his direction in recent weeks. It was roughly tied. The yes-no binary on recall was statistically tied about a month ago. And now the polling shows a 15 to 20 point lead against the recall. So a lead effectively for Newsom, sort of the no answer is expected to prevail tonight, which would then vitiate the second part of the question of who would replace Newsom, because it looks like, in all likelihood, he won't be replaced. Joe Biden, the president, went out there to Long Beach, California, yesterday to help close the deal and cinch things for the Democrats. And here was part of his messaging, which I can attest. I was just out in California recently. I saw ad after ad mentioning one name. He isn't on the ballot, but here was Joe Biden invoking Donald Trump repeatedly at a rally for Gavin Newsom and against the recall cut 30. All of you know the last year I got to run against the real Donald Trump. This year, the leading Republican running for governor is a, uh, the closest thing to a Trump clone that I've ever seen in your state. Can't let that happen. Too much at stake. And here's why it's so important for you all to vote no on a recall. We'll be protecting California from Trump Republicans trying to block us from beating this pandemic. I'm going to make this as simple as I can. You either keep Gavin Newsom as your governor or you'll get Donald Trump. Juan, obviously, this is a state that Joe Biden won by nearly 30 points over Donald Trump. It's a very deep blue state. And clearly the Democrats have decided that the most powerful closing message to their voters is to say a vote yes on recall is a vote for Donald Trump. Do you think that will be effective? I think it's becoming kind of the mantra for Democrats nationwide right now, and it's having a positive effect for Democrats, so expect to see more of it, Guy. Uh, I see it here in the Virginia suburbs where the advertising for Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat running for governor uh, against uh, Glenn Youngkin, um, it's obvious that he's saying Trump was defeated in Virginia in 2020 and we'll defeat him again. Uh, And runs radio ads where, you know, Youngkin was praising Trump and saying, you know, that he, he appreciates Trump and all that. All you're seeing Democrats do is basically seek a reprise of the 2020 election. I'm just not sure how that works when Trump isn't on the ballot. I mean, you can scare enough people out in California where you've got a 30-point margin to play with, but we'll see how it works in Virginia, northern Virginia in particular. I just saw a poll. Let me speak to that, because I think that when you have something like the abortion law in Texas, when you have voter suppression efforts 
you know, taking place across the country in the name of election fraud, and again, both can be easily tied to Donald Trump. I think this is energizing Democrats in a way that I hadn't anticipated for the midterms. Suddenly, the passion that I normally associate with the Republican side of the ticket uh, is now really present on the Democratic side because the Democrats are saying, you know what, we're getting beat up here. Well, I would dispute your characterization on voter suppression, although I'll come back to that term in a second because I think it might actually have an application out in California. We'll get to that in a moment. But I saw a poll yesterday that had the Republicans now tied on the congressional ballot, the generic congressional ballot. It's their best showing on that ballot since 2015. So the Democrats can maybe try to run against Donald Trump. I'm sure that's what they'll attempt to do as their playbook in a bunch of places in 2022. I just think that's going to be more difficult when he's not actually on the ballot and when Joe Biden is no longer just an alternative, but in fact the president with a record, and we've seen in a lot of polling, his numbers have really taken a hit on a number of crucial issues. So we're seeing some of the efforts from each party to sort of map out the contours and sort of a preview of what will be attempted next year. I think Virginia, the Virginia suburbs, might be a more interesting litmus test or testing ground, even though it's a pretty blue area, than California, which is even more blue. But we'll know soon enough. But on the point one of voter suppression, you and I have sparred about this in the past. I'm in favor of laws like the ones passed in Georgia and Texas. The vast majority of Americans are in favor of voter ID and that sort of thing. What I actually see as voter suppression is what President Trump, and maybe you'll agree with me on this, has been saying already about the election out in California. He has put out statements and he's given interviews saying that that election is rigged, just like he claimed that the election against him was stolen, which isn't true, right? His, his loss in 2020 was a loss. It was not a stolen election. I think Republicans who insist on pretending that it was uh, are wasting their time and are not actually figuring out how it is to turn around and win again. I think it becomes even more preposterous to apply the same untruths and spin to an election preemptively out in California, which is a deep, deep blue, very liberal place. And I do wonder, the only people who would listen to Donald Trump and say, oh, the system's rigged, maybe I shouldn't participate in it, would be Republican voters. And we saw that effect in Georgia early this year in two special elections, those runoffs. So not technically special elections, but the runoffs for U.S. Senate, and you had hundreds of thousands of Republicans who did vote in November, who did not turn out in January with the whole Stop the Steal charade underway. Ironically, and I think troublingly for Republicans, if this is the approach that Trump, with his huge megaphone, will continue to take, that might indeed suppress Republican votes not just today in California, but in some of these upcoming elections, perhaps even next year. That worries me. You should worry. And this is an intriguing analysis that you offer because it is based on hard fact in terms of what happened in Georgia. I mean, you can listen to Mitch McConnell, the Senate, former Senate Majority Leader, now the Senate Minority Leader is a Republican, because of the results in those two elections. And he says what Trump did in fact, deterred Republican voters in the state of Georgia from coming out because they said, you know what, we can't trust the election according to President Trump. And the data and proves now, that. By the way, the data bears it out, too. It's right. not just McConnell saying it. No, no, absolutely. I was just saying somebody the listeners can identify with sure. who is 
I think, politically expert. I, no matter what you think of how Mitch McConnell behaves politically, he's pretty dang good. Um, that was my point. But the larger point to your analysis, and the reason I say I find it so intriguing is that I see this now as something that has grown way beyond what I thought it was. I never believed that so many people would continue to perpetuate just an absolute falsehood that has been proven to be wrong for so long, but you still have these fraud investigations in Arizona and now elsewhere in the country, and, and as you say, it now extends to a preemptive strike against the recall election in California, where clearly, clearly, as long as Democrats got engaged, they have the large just number of voters in the state, and therefore would be more oh, likely far. to win. That's I don't right. see how you can, I mean, it's just not, it, it, you have to decide, you have your own alternate reality, an alternate facts, as Kellyanne Conway said, or something, but you're, you're buying into a point of view as opposed to buying into believing in the truth and what's in front of you, the objective Well, facts. you're buying into a face-saving story, a little fairy tale, and look, there were some irregularities, I think some stuff needed to be cleaned up, that's why I support what they did in Georgia, what they did in Texas. I think the Arizona audit has descended into chaos, they have proven absolutely nothing, unsurprisingly. We don't have to relitigate everything that happened in 2020, but if Republicans, if enough, it's not even most Republicans, if even a fraction of Republicans are convinced that our electoral system is so broken and rigged and filled with so much fraud that multiple states are outright stolen all the time, if they're convinced of that and they decide there's no point in voting, that is one of the greatest gifts that Democrats could ever be given that I can imagine. And I think that a self-serving story there could end up turning into a Frankenstein monster. It already did in Georgia. I think that California is so far gone that it doesn't necessarily apply there. But if that's the the way that this is going to be presented by an extremely influential political figure, the former president, it could harm Republicans. I just hope that the the anger and the motivation that so many conservatives and even independents are feeling right now about the failures and overreach of the Democrats, that will overwhelm some of these doubts, because the only way you can guarantee your vote will count is to vote. If you don't vote at all, I tell you for certain it will not count, and the people that you oppose will be the primary beneficiaries. That's just a warning that I wanted to give, hopefully something that we don't have to revisit terribly often, but we'll see. Juan, we've got to leave it there for now. Hopefully next year you will consider me as your plus one to the Met Gala. I'll start planning my outfit right now. Juan, always appreciate Tax the rich. We, we already do. And I, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty, can I personally tax your wealth? Because I know you, you have a know, lot more money I, than I do. this is a joke. Did you see I the know. dress? Okay, I did. Right. Uh, no, no, I, I am making a joke right back, but okay. only half a joke. Because I, I would like a portion of your bank account, just for fairness. Thank you, all right. <laughs> all right, Juan, Thank we'll talk you, to you God. soon. Bye-bye. That is Juan Williams, our colleague and friend. We'll be on special report together tonight with Brett Bayer on the panel. So tune in for that coming up in the next hour Fox News channel. With that, the happy hour returns after this break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. We're back. Thanks for joining us. And I would put this story 
in the happy hour category in as much as you should be happy that you do not work for this woman. BuzzFeed News has an investigative report about the abusive conditions inside the office of Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State, who you may not have heard of, but she is very influential on the hard left. She is the chairwoman of the Progressive Caucus in the House. So the squad gets a lot of attention, but in terms of that team, the broader squad, if you will, of lefties in the House that wield a lot of power and probably generate a fair amount of fear with Nancy Pelosi and leadership, she is the chairwoman of that group. And she also does a fair amount of television interviews. She's relatively high profile. And the BuzzFeed headline is this, quote, she's one of Congress's leading progressives, just not in her own office, staffers say. And it's sort of a tale as old as time in Washington, D.C., where you have these preening, do-good, sort of virtue-signaling bosses, leaders, who project something publicly and behind closed doors within their own offices and their own circles, they're just awful. And, of course, there are wonderful, kind people on both sides of the aisle as well, whether you like them or agree with them or not. But I think that these are interesting stories whenever they get written. And there are a few anecdotes along the way. For example, Jayapal was introducing legislation and championing, reg- and championing legislation to help people during the pandemic to make sure that they weren't going to get laid off due to all of the chaos that was unfolding in the country. Meanwhile, she laid off members of her staff, not for any specific reason that was given, not because they were given a directive that they had to tighten their belt. She just decided to do it. So she's championing workers with her rhetoric and her legislative work and then just cutting her own people loose without any explanation. One of them in particular was really humiliated, if you read the story in the middle of a pandemic. Then, of course, there are the typical anecdotes about the dressings down, the berating, the yelling, abusive behavior, massive turnover in the office, people feeling like they are constantly being gaslit with expectations changing on the fly and endlessly. People just get out of there as quickly as they can. The story quotes a staffer saying that this person had worked in bad environments previously, and been on staff for, quote, some awful people. I've been colleagues with awful people. I have never worked in a place that has made me so miserable and so not excited for public service as Pramila Jayapal's office. Another former staffer said this, the congresswoman is an effective public advocate for workers, but, quote, she just doesn't recognize that the staff are also humans. Oof. She also blamed her staff for her own weight gain. Apparently, they did not schedule her enough time at the gym, so it's their fault. I should have thought of that one. During my COVID weight gain, I put on, what, five or ten pounds, something like that. Many of us did. I should have blamed Christine. That's actually pretty innovative. But she's out there speaking for the people and speaking for compassion. Just don't talk to her staffers. And in this happy hour, be happy that you're not a member of that staff. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Guy Benson. 
Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Earlier today, Dr. Marty McCary stopped by. He's a Fox News contributor, a surgeon, and professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins. And I really appreciate his contributions to our national dialogue on COVID. No exception today, we tackled a number of important subjects that have been quasi-verboten in a lot of cases, but not with Dr. McCary. Here's part of that conversation. I would like to start by playing a soundbite from the governor of Florida. This was the other day. He was asked to respond to criticisms and attacks from the president of the United States on a host of COVID-related issues. Ron DeSantis made a number of points. I won't play the entire clip because it's a bit long, but he made one specific point that I know you have been making for quite some time about natural immunity and how people who have recovered from COVID, how the new attempt by President Biden to impose effectively a federal vaccine mandate, how that might affect those people. Here's what DeSantis said in part, cut 32. This is not about science, uh, because if it was about science, you would recognize the infection conferred immunity that people like Jonathan has. Israel did a study. They said it was much, much more protective than the Pfizer uh, vaccine was. Cleveland Clinic did a study, same thing. Every single credible study always shows that it provides good protection. And so that's just the reality. So I don't support mandates at all, but if you're doing mandate based off this, if you're really following science, you would acknowledge this natural immunity. And All right, so doctor, what about this? The natural immunity debate, I think is a very interesting one. Apparently, if you're fully vaccinated, which I am, and I am a very, very outspoken supporter of the vaccines, I've also recovered from COVID after I got vaccinated. But the current rules and a lot of the rhetoric emanating from Washington is that if you have gotten both of your vaccine doses, you are good and you are basically protected, although they muddy the waters on that sometimes. And if you have your little card that proves it, then you can go about your life and you can work and you don't have to worry about your employer or anything like that. But if you have quite a lot of protection naturally in the antibodies in your body because you've had COVID already, that doesn't seem to count when it comes to to these calculations. And I wonder how we can address that. Do you think that there is some way where people can prove that they have antibodies and should that be interchangeable perhaps with a vaccine passport, if you will. Well, you've summarized it very well, Guy, and I agree with how you've described it here. You know, the public health officials in the United States, and it's just a couple people making all the decisions medically. We don't really, um, you know, it's been a battle of science versus scientific authoritarianism and science lost. You know, we have a small group of people making all the decisions. And so they decided early on, that natural immunity was fleeting. It would go away or it would start to wane in six months or a year. And that vaccination would be long lasting. And they got it backwards. Okay. They got it backwards. So when the data showed that they had it backwards, and by the way, it's okay to have a wrong hypothesis in science, as long as you evolve your position. And they didn't, they held on tightly for 10 months as many of us, as you described, were out there saying, hey, wait a minute, we're not seeing reinfections after people recover from COVID cause severe illness. We just don't see it. Tell me a case. Show me a case. There are, you know, exceptionally rare cases out there 
And so natural immunity is, as the big Israeli study uh, shows, 27 times more protective. That's what Ron DeSantis was referring to. So on that point, I want to dig in a little bit further, because my understanding about the Israeli study, which is a very significant study and and very broad-based, is that the best combination you can have is, frankly, what I have. I I didn't do this purposely, but I have natural antibodies and I have both vaxes, uh, you know, both doses of the vax. So if you have those things combined, you are ultra protected against COVID moving forward. But if it's just a battle based on this study... If it's just a battle between natural immunity and just vaccination, the Israeli study suggested that natural immunity is much more powerful than just vaccination. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. So there are 15 studies that, as, um, as you heard earlier from Ron DeSantis, Cleveland Clinic, Washington University, other studies, have shown that natural immunity is superior if you truly had symptoms and recovered. My full interview with Dr. Marty McCary available online at GuyBensonShow.com. It's also in our podcast, free on demand every day after the show concludes. We encourage you to check that out, download, subscribe, maybe leave us a rating, only if it's good, please. When we come back, the home stretch, a classic TV show is coming back. The theme song will speak for itself. That's straight ahead on the home stretch. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Homestretch, Tuesday edition here on the Guy Benson Show. Check me out tonight on the panel with Red Bayer, special report in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern time. So last night I was up later than expected watching TV because I was hooked on the Monday night football game. On Sunday... My New York Giants looked, well, let's be honest, like hot garbage, as expected. Just awful, again. So it'll probably be a long season. We'll see how long this Daniel Jones experiment goes. That was after a less than inspiring, but at least a win, from my Northwestern Wildcats on Saturday. So I was maybe not that energized to keep watching this game. And yet the Monday night game on ESPN was phenomenal. I was excited to see the new stadium out in Vegas with actual fans in it. You guys know that one of my best friends, Dan, is the Vegas Golden Knights broadcaster on the hockey side. So I just have like a soft spot for Vegas sports. And so it was a good matchup. The Raiders, who recently moved, and then the Ravens from Baltimore. Another one of my buddies, Andrew, is a big Ravens fan. And the last few minutes of regulation and overtime were just... A plus in terms of excitement. Twists and turns, ridiculous plays, mistakes, a huge game changing forced fumble by my guy, Carl Nassib, and then a very memorable final play to win it all for the home team in OT. So I enjoyed it. I was highly entertained. I was also entertained by little bits and pieces of the Manning brothers doing their alternate live broadcast over on ESPN2, The Deuce, with Eli teasing his older brother Peyton quite a lot. I might sample that from time to time. I prefer to watch the game as it is with you know the play-by-play and the analysis, but the Manning brothers got pretty good reviews. So that is just something that I wanted to put out there because it was a fun, thrilling football game, and I had no real investment in the outcome. 
but it was some late-night entertainment that then it actually took me a little while to come down from that, even though I didn't really care. It was such a good game, I knew I wasn't going to be able to fall asleep right away, so I just hung out and watched Scott Van Pelt on SportsCenter a little bit and then finally fell asleep. But I know that our producer, Christine, is perhaps unable to sleep. She is so excited for the return of an iconic show that aired forever, I mean, for years on Fox, the broadcast network. It will be exclusively coming back on Fox Nation, where this show also streams, foxnation.com. You can sign up. There are free year-long subscriptions available for members of the military, veterans, first responders. Amazing opportunity there at foxnation.com. But Fox Nation will soon become the exclusive home of the reboot and the return of a show whose theme song needs really no introduction. Hit it, Justin. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Producer Christine apparently is a big fan of this show. She, in fact, sang part of the theme song on our planning call today. Christine, would you care to just remind the audience how that song goes? C. Diddy, musical artist? <clears throat> well, do, do I have Wyatt there? You do not. For this the is, beat? This is, a, no, this is a solo performance. Do I really have to do this? Yes, you do. Bad boys, bad boys. Oh, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? That's my accent, too. Does that sound good? A bad boy, bad boy. Oh, what you gonna do? Oh, it's, it's boys, plural. Just a quick fact check. And you shouldn't have... You got it right the first time. I was about to compliment you. That was both cringeworthy and also not terrible. What? Really? Yeah. Wait, how could it be both? Just go back and listen to the podcast, Christine, and I think <laughs> maybe you'll understand. Maybe not. And maybe you will just have a huge smile. You'll be very proud of yourself. Now, I wonder, is this a show that you love because you have been on it at some point? Because I can sort of imagine you having made a cameo, right, where, I don't know, it's the Jersey State Troopers or, you know, your local police department responding to a domestic call of some sort. Wait, you're, pull up. are you saying the cops are coming because someone called the cops on me? I'm I'm saying that they arrive on Eyesore Lane and they're like, uh, we have an unidentified female who appears to have a box of wine in a red wagon and she is very loud. She's doing something to a giant inflatable Santa Claus in her front yard. I can sort of imagine this and you welcoming the police, perhaps singing, in fact, the cops theme song to them after a bit of mama's juice and they have to figure out whether to just give you a warning or perhaps take you in to the old drunk tank. This is something that I'm envisioning, and I'm wondering, is this a flashback to something that I have seen, or is this just a fantasy? You know what? <laughs> what's scary is I have transported Uh-oh. alcohol in Megan's little red wagon <laughs> up and down my street. Wait, that's real? Yeah, I definitely. <laughs> we had the radio flyer wagon, and we definitely, going you know, to neighbors and neighbors, we would put all the alcohol. She's like, Mommy, I want to play with my wagon. No, Megan. Mama needs it for her juice. Now go back inside and make me another cocktail. Not that far, but not that. Yeah, yeah. And probably during the holidays when I definitely had, you know, one of the inflatables up. Oh, yeah. No, this could happen. It's, and, you're and not actually the, that far off, but I have not been arrested. The, Let's put that out there, please. They play the 911 call of someone who had called the authorities to your yard, they surprisingly have a foreign accent of some sort. It sounds maybe 
Australian or, or something like that, and the police show up only to find you. I feel like you would be effusively over the top in your welcoming of the police. I would imagine you actually offering them if, some of your stash. If the, if the cops came with cameras and the producers and it was cops, I would be so excited. I don't even think I'd be that upset that I was possibly going to get arrested because I'd probably talk my way out of it. Maybe by just singing the song to them, you know, like, hey, fellas, bad boys, bad boys, you know. And just- on, come, on come the handcuffs at that point. <laughs> I'm imagining you with red and blue solo cups and you holding one of each. It's like it's like the lights on your car. Wee woo, wee woo. Like th- this is this is how I'm envisioning this playing out. Guy, you understand I'm a mother, right? Yes. I mean, that is literally biologically true. I'm a role model to many, especially I'm a role model to young Wyatt. You, you, (laughs) I think that Wyatt was the one who suggested I force you to sing the song. I don't think you're a role model. I mean, you had to quit being a class mother in your daughter's class because of so many failures. That that was just too... It was like the Afghanistan withdrawal of of being the class mother. This is how well you planned. You were Biden-esque. They just expected a lot from me as a class mom. I wasn't going to do everything they demanded. You inherited a deadline, not a plan, is what I'm hearing. For, you know, bringing cookies in for the holiday celebration. Although they can probably call it Christmas still, right? It's a Catholic school. Yes. Yes, they can. We have an Easter party. We had a first communion party. We had a Christmas party. This year, we're going to have a Christmas pageant. And I'm hoping Megan gets the role of Mary. (laughs) Well, the point of this ridiculous conversation is to just offer a public service announcement. If you were a fan of cops, and many were, because it ran for many, many seasons, then it was gone for a while. And a number of Reality police shows were canceled because of the whole anti-cop wave that swept across the country. Well, Cops is back exclusively on Fox Nation. You can sign up foxnation.com. It's a very reasonable fee, especially if you consider that you can stream this fine show on Fox Nation. I mean, my goodness, worth the price of admission right there. And there's a special offer, as we mentioned, for veterans, members of the military, first responders, a free year of Fox Nation if you want to catch Cops, which is back, coming back. One more thought on entertainment. We did football. We did Cops. Tonight, and picking up on a conversation that we started last week, you were on vacation, Christine, but I have already gotten into the American Crime Story portrayal and dramatization of the Clinton impeachment saga. Their O.J. Simpson series, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, was absolutely amazing. Their assassination of Johnny Versace series was fine. I enjoyed it. I wouldn't recommend it as highly. But one episode in, I'm already very excited for episode number two tonight. We just met the Bill Clinton character at the end of last episode. And what's so interesting, Christine is watching this with Adam, who's a number of years younger than I am. I remember the impeachment drama and some of the details because I was in middle school at the time. And, you know, broad strokes, I kind of you know, know what happened in the impeachment and so on and so forth. He was acquitted. Adam knows almost nothing about it because he was younger and not really paying attention. So everything is completely brand new to him. 
He's like, who is this guy? Foster, Vincent Foster? I'm like, oh, just buckle up for this series because there are a lot of twists and turns that I'm sure I don't remember, right? Even though I was somewhat aware and sort of sentient politically at the time, I think for people even a few years younger than I am, it's going to be quite a roller coaster experience. Just like actually OJ was, the OJ series for me. Because I was a young elementary school student at the time, and I knew that he was found not guilty, despite, I mean, pretty obviously being guilty. All that other stuff, almost all of it, I did not know and was gasping and taking notes and Googling during the show. Did that really happen? Is that real? I'd imagine that will be Adam during the impeachment-themed series, which resumes on FX tonight, and we've got it DVR'd. I think you'd like it, Christine. I have to start it, and I just have to say, I mean, I was in high school during this whole thing, so, you know, I pretty much remember all the key players. You're that's... almost Monica's age. Oh, God. Really? Actually, that's true, right? Yeah, it's more of a shot of Clinton than you. <laughs> but I have to say, whenever we have Ken Starr on, I still get a little like, ooh, it's Ken Starr, you know, because oh, yeah. such a big name. He's been referenced so far in episode one, but we have not gotten the character yet of Kenneth Starr. So we'll see how he compares how the actor compares to the real deal because he is not a regular on this program but has been on several times in fact we should maybe get him back to talk about the show that could actually be really interesting at some point in the coming months let's make a little note of that and circle back as jen would say and with that we've got to go i've got to get ready for special report joining brett bayer and company including juan williams and molly hemingway tonight usually around 6.40 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel for a special report. Back here tomorrow, actually something pretty exciting on the show tomorrow that we will explain tomorrow, but a fairly momentous day for the Guy Benson Show. That's Wednesday. In the meantime, we will leave you hanging with that tease. Have a great night. Bad boys, bad boys. Oh, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.